the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Here is a question to start us off. What do you think life is going to be like the next 20, 30, 40 years? What do you think life is going to be like? Because the way you answer that question is going to make a huge difference to what you make your life all about. We live in a world of profound optimism, I think. Probably a bit less optimistic now, after COVID and with war in Europe. But most of us have lived through a time of relative peace and prosperity, at least here in England. And we've come to develop the kind of optimism that we are progressively working towards some kind of utopia, when all the problems of this world will get fixed. It's why the journalist Rowan Hooper was able to write this book, How to Spend a Trillion Dollars. I don't have a trillion dollars knocking around, neither does he. But he imagines what it would be like to approach a whole bunch of different problems if he had a trillion dollars in the bank and how he would fix them. It's got the subtitle, Saving the World and Solving the Biggest Mysteries in Science. It finishes, after all of this optimistic declaration of ways that we can fix the world, with this remarkable quote. What I have found warming and sustaining is talking to some of the thousands of scientists and economists and activists around the world who are working for a better world. There are millions of people in this team, in this project to change the world. They are devoting their lives to it. He goes on, there is a togetherness here and there is succor from the knowledge that we are part of the most important collective mission of all time. Can you hear the optimism there, the ambition? Can you feel it? If if his optimism is right about what we've got coming up, all the problems we can solve, I know what I want to devote my life to. 
I can imagine that those first hearers of Genesis might be asking similar questions about what life will be like, what they should devote their lives to. At various points in this series in Genesis, we've been uh, picturing this book from the perspective of Moses' first hearers entering the land of Canaan as they teeter on the edge of the Jordan, gazing into the promised land, preparing for their new life together as the people of God. You can imagine them asking, what are we expecting? What is just over the horizon? What is life going to be like? And the way they answer that question is going to make a big difference as to what they devote themselves to once they get in the promised land. And this foundational teaching in Genesis 1-4 to is here to set the agenda, to show us what kind of world we live in and our place within it, and to help us commit rightly with our lives. If you weren't here last week, you missed a really important step in the section. Uh, Please do visit the website and listen to it if you can. Uh, We've been seeing this great world that God created. It's great design for the world. But as you can see in that box at the top of the handout, there was a massive turning point last week, the fall. Adam and Eve defied the word of the Lord. They rebelled against him. And that's where everything went wrong. And you can imagine hearing that thinking, right, okay, everything's gone wrong. What are we going to do now? How can we get back to Eden? How can we fix this world? How can we save this world? But as Moses goes on, he's written this passage to show us that we can't, uh, to show us where we are now. Uh, It's here to show us as we trace through those same areas of Genesis 2 that we are not in Eden anymore. And in fact, we can't get back there. As Israel stepped into Canaan, as we step out into the world, uh, this passage is here to give us realistic expectations which might sound like we're in for a really bleak evening. If you found last week bleak, you might be really worried that we're going that same way again. But in fact, we are on the verge of something extraordinary. From time to time, we hit passages in the Bible that so transform our understanding of the world, they could completely shift the whole direction of your life. And I think Genesis 3 is one of them. People complain that I always say that sort of thing. I can see the wry smiles from the student section. And to some extent, that's true, because as we listen to the voice of the Lord, we experience really significant uh, words from him. We get to listen to our creator explaining the world. It's particularly true, though, in Genesis 1 to 4, in this foundational teaching, and it's especially true this evening. Even for those of us who are familiar with it, this will be something, I think, of a wake-up call, a reminder of the world that we really live in, that we say we know already. Here's another chance to be reminded And if you've never studied these verses before in depth, well, let me warn you, this has the potential to transform your life, transform the way you see the world and what you do with the years the Lord has given to you. So let's dive into point one, uh, which is where we'll spend most of our time. God has justly blocked the way back to Eden. God has justly blocked the way back to Eden. Uh, That much was clear from the end of the passage, wasn't it? Verse 22 Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. 
Adam and Eve. They had been enjoying the garden of God's presence, the garden of Eden, of, of delight. But as they chose to rebel against God, he responded with a clear, fair judgment. They were cast out of the garden and blocked from getting back in. God put these angelic bounces on the door with a flaming sword. I like to think this is the place in the Bible where you see lightsabers, but that says more about me than it does about the Bible. Here they are to block the way back to Eden. And I know some people think this is an expression of God's love. After what Adam and Eve had done, living forever would be so awful, he's protecting them from getting to the tree of life. Now, it's true, God is loving. We'll see more of that later. But I don't think that this is an expression of his mercy to them. Uh, He is loving, he is merciful, but he's also just. Uh, Indeed, he, he wouldn't be loving if he didn't also care about justice. And his action here is an expression of that justice. Uh, Eden was a place of blessing, uh, the place of God's presence, life in all its fullness. And to be cast away from there is to be blocked from paradise. It is to be prevented from enjoying all of the blessings that we saw back in Genesis 2. Uh, Indeed, he's carrying out the sentence that he had warned them of in Genesis 2. Uh, 2 verse 17, Uh, God said this, Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And so now in chapter 3, verse 22, God says, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden. A spiritual death as they are separated from God. And the inevitability of physical death in the future. Adam and Eve, they'd rebelled against God. They became like him in the sense of knowing good and evil independently. But where God knows good and evil as a judge, an expert in the law, they had the knowledge of a guilty party, a knowledge of good and evil which they had practiced. And in God's justice, he executes his judgment, blocked from the Garden of Eden. Indeed, blocking the way back to Eden has been the trajectory of the whole passage up to this point. Consider, for example, what verse 16 says about marriage. Chapter 3, verse 16, to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Marriage back in Eden had been a great blessing, the perfect capstone to God's wonderful creation. Genesis 2.24 pictured a man leaving his father and mother and holding fast to his wife, this permanent, exclusive, complementary union of one man and one woman. And of course, it was the context for humans to fulfill that commission back in chapter one, to be fruitful and multiply, creating lots of copies of this image of God in them. But the only thing that multiplies here is her pain in childbearing. While having children remains a great blessing, it is haunted by the pain of labor and all the hardships surrounding bringing up children, bringing them into the world. And marriage itself gets turned upside down too. We saw two weeks ago that God designed roles for men and women in marriage as part of his good design. Do check out that talk if you missed it online. But now those beautiful roles have been corrupted As she's told, second half of verse 16, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. It's a slightly tricky verse to understand. 
Uh, but it's apparent, isn't it, that rela- the relationship is in some way broken. We get some help if we just look across to chapter 4, verse 7, where those same verbs come up. Uh, halfway through the verse, sin is crouching at the door, its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain, who we'll meet next week, is battling with temptation at this moment, and sin's desire for him is clearly not a good desire, it's not affection. It's clearly some sort of desire to be in control, and him ruling over sin. It's a battle for control. Karen Sewell, in her excellent book, Liberated, How the Bible Exalts and Dignifies Women, she writes this of these verses. She says, these words describe a struggle for control and mastery a battle of the sexes. The glorious equality and unity which had existed between Adam and Eve beforehand lay in tatters. Instead of a united alliance, there was now a competitive disharmony. Here are the seeds of all relationship breakdowns. Derek Kidner, in his commentary, said it's moved from to love and to cherish, it's become to desire and to dominate. It's a devastating unraveling of the beautiful institution that God established at the first. And it's worth asking, what do you think marriage is going to be like? Uh, Lots of us here are single. And it's so easy for those of us who are single to idealize marriage, to to imagine marriage to be this kind of idyllic Eden, uh, finally fulfillment after the exile of singleness. But it's not. Not after the fall. We need to realize marriage is hard. Marriage is still a great gift and a wonderful opportunity to give a picture of God's goodness, as we thought about a couple of weeks ago. Most of us will end up getting married, and that's a really great thing. It's for a good reason, but it will never be the great gift that it was. Now, marriage is always hampered to some degree by the battle of the sexes. Men and women will spurn their God-given roles in this struggle for mastery. Women seeking to take control. Men seeking to take advantage. Childbirth will be painful. And for some, I guess maybe some in this room right now, it won't be possible to have children. If you're experiencing something of that hardship yourself at the moment, would you make use of the time afterwards to talk to someone about it? Wonderfully, we can be those who support one another through the brokenness of this world. But all of us need to have realistic expectations. Marriage cannot be the perfect capstone that it was originally designed to be. Even the best marriages still experience this brokenness. There is no way back to Eden. God has blocked the way. And it's not just marriage. It's also work. Look at verse 17. And to Adam, God said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Again, work was supposed to be part of God's good design back in Eden, an opportunity for humans to spread a knowledge of his goodness around the world. 
back in chapter 2, verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. It was a privileged role, a glorious honor. But now we are destined to work in a world that is fighting back. The glorious privilege of work is replaced with pain and toil and futility. Our greatest efforts are thwarted by thorns and thistles. The most successful city worker is as vulnerable to the next market crash as anyone else. The most skillful doctor will ultimately be unable to save any of her patients from death in the end. The most effective teacher will still find his students are misbehaved and the photocopier doesn't work and the syllabus changes every 45 minutes. Some people enter the world of work with a blissful optimism that they are going to cure all of the world's ills. Optimistic, like Rowan Hooper, that they're going to save the world and solve all the biggest mysteries in science or whatever area it is. They think they might be joining the most important collective mission of all time. But how will you overturn the verdict of the, uh, the Lord God himself? Cursed is the ground because of you. Work is still good. It still benefits from the wonderful validation of Genesis 2. It was, after all, part of God's good design in the beginning. But now the ground will fight you all the way. Files will get corrupted. People will misunderstand each other. Months, even years of hard work will get destroyed by fire or flood or vandalism or simple human failure. Because God, in his justice, has determined that it will be so. I wonder, are you looking for a career in which to fulfill your potential? You won't find one. It's impossible. Humanity was designed with too much potential for it ever to be fulfilled in work that is cursed. And if you think you have found that job... Well, you can come and tell me about it later, but I think it's probably because you haven't been in it long enough to taste the bitterness of the curse. Work cannot be the glorious privilege that it was originally designed to be. Even the best workplaces, the greatest human projects, are plagued by this brokenness. There is no way back to Eden. God has blocked the way. Marriage, work, and thirdly, life. Uh, let me read again the most famous words in the chapter, verse 19. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Nowadays we're encouraged to see death as a natural phenomenon. It's just one of those things, it's just, uh, an, uh, it's just natural. However much we try to believe it, it doesn't work. A death is not natural, it's profoundly unnatural. A monstrous disruption to the created order. A humans were not meant to die. Back in Genesis, again, chapter 2, 2 verse 7, God breathed into man's nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. And he was meant to enjoy the tree of life and live forever to promise that he will return to the dust. It's as unnatural as it gets. And a phrase that haunts the rest of the Old Testament, and indeed funerals, 
our lives today. I wonder what are your expectations for your health in the future? In your 20s, you can almost believe that you'll live forever, and you laugh a little bit at those of us who are looking a bit more saggy and grey. But as terrifying as you might find this, I sat where you all sat not that many years ago with a full head of thick brown hair. <laughs> and the only tablets that I made use of were digital ones. Whereas now I consume basically a small pharmacy every week in order to keep me alive. And it's not going to do that forever. And the same is true for all of us. A few years ago, I'd probably have had to work a bit harder to persuade you that disease and death are a blight on our society. And most of us, mercifully, haven't had to confront our own mortality that much. But the headlines constantly bring it to the fore, don't they? Death is real. Disease has ruined our lives. We enjoy every breath that the Lord has given to us. Another day of life. But we are dust and to dust we shall return. Uh, some are claiming that we're going to defeat death. Uh, did you know that the co-founder of PayPal, Peter Thiel, has described death as just a problem to be solved? The historian Yuval Noah Harari, who some of us will have come across, has described death as just a technical glitch, and every technical problem has a technical solution. He goes on, we don't need to wait for the second coming in order to overcome death, a couple of geeks in a lab can do it. Well, I haven't heard anything from them yet. And they're not going to manage it, are they? They can't. Life cannot be the beautiful, eternal experience that it was originally designed to be for humanity. Even those with the greatest health, the longest life, are destined for the grave. God has blocked the way back to Eden. Our stories about being unable to get back, they resonate with us, don't they? I think it's one of the reasons why we looked on with so much anguish at Nazanin Zaghari Radcliffe as she was imprisoned in Iran. Why we were so thrilled to see her on her way home and back this week. Uh, as a slightly more trivial example, last night I watched Spider-Man No Way Home, the new Spider-Man film. And you don't even need to know anything about that film to know that it's got this sense of an inability to return. No way home. No way to get back to where you belong. But it's not just other people's stories. This is the story that we are living in. No way home. Even while there is so much goodness in the world, every highlight has its shadow. Indeed, the shadow of God's just judgment stretching into every part of our lives. And doesn't that make so much sense of the world? Why work can be so good and yet so exhausting, so exciting and yet never quite fulfilling. Why relationships are so wonderful and yet can be so painful. Why life is so stimulating and yet agonizingly short. We're always hoping for something better beyond the horizon, but the thing that we're really hoping for is Eden. And God has blocked the way back. But, but there is a way forward. That's point two on the handouts. Uh, this one, much more briefly, uh, there is a way forward. I take it the big lessons in this passage have come through in what we've already seen. 
But God's intention is not to leave us in despair. Moses didn't write this so that Israel would descend into misery. Rather, he wrote it so that they would have realistic expectations of the world. As they stepped into the promised land to realize they couldn't make it Eden. But also, he wants to show us where true hope lies. And so scattered through the passage are glimmers of real hope. Uh, I wonder if that's there in verse 20. Uh, The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. That's an intriguingly positive um, way to name someone after death has been brought into the world. Uh, It might be there in verse 21 when the Lord God made garments for Adam and his wife and clothed them. But most clearly and most importantly for us and for the rest of the Bible story, uh, you get it in the curse of the serpent. Uh, Just flip back to page uh, page 3, verse 14. Let me read again at the beginning of our passage. Verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Uh, This isn't a just-so story, a kind of Aesop's fable for understanding how the snake lost its legs. Remember, the serpent here is to represent Satan, the devil, and God's words to him are bursting with significance. Uh, The commentator Joel Salehammer has this helpful observation about eating the dust. Uh, He says, The expression elsewhere carries the meaning of total defeat, Uh, For example, Micah 7, verse 17. The curse of the snake then, as a result of his part in the fall, is to be the perennial reminder of the the ultimate defeat. Uh, Indeed, this ultimate defeat comes through in verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head or he shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. Every commentary, indeed the rest of the Bible, recognizes huge significance in this promise. Again, here is Joel Salehammer. In the narrative to follow, there is to be war, enmity. The two sides are represented by two seeds, the seed of the snake and the seed of the woman. In the ensuing battle, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the snake. Though wounded in the struggle, the woman's seed will be victorious. It is, as countless others have concerned, a theme that runs all the way through the Bible and which culminates in the cross of the Lord Jesus. A promise that uh, even as Jesus would be wounded in the struggle, even crucified, Satan would be defeated. For a long time, I wasn't very convinced that this verse could carry the weight that was placed on it. But as you read the rest of the Old Testament, and especially the New Testament, you see this language getting picked up. In particular, the book of Revelation picks up the language of that great dragon, the ancient serpent, to refer to Satan, and then to go on to talk of his defeat at the feet of Jesus. A guy called Andy Nacelli has written a book, The Serpent and the Serpent Slayer, which helpfully charts the way the whole Bible story develops this serpent-crushing theme. In a sense, it is the story of the whole Bible, defeating the serpent in order for Jesus to rescue his bride, the church. In fact, as Nacelli puts it, uh, the mission of Jesus is kill the dragon, get the girl, which I quite like. 
Uh, Because as Jesus died the death that he died on our behalf, as he took the punishment that you and I deserve, he defeated Satan. As he took the judgment of God for our rebellion and opened the way for us to come back into relationship with him, he defeated the great dragon, that ancient serpent. Though his heel was bruised, though he was wounded in the struggle, he has crushed the head of Satan and won his bride, the church. He killed the dragon and got the girl. It's cheesy, but I I like it. And it helps to illustrate, doesn't it, the significance of that verse. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 15. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Countless Christians through the centuries, uh, the Bible writers themselves, they recognize it, that Moses has put this verse in here to give us hope. As we sang earlier, there is no victory but Jesus crucified. No other cure for sin, but that our Savior died. No other hope we have, but that he rose again. There's no way back to Eden, but there is a way forward through the one who was to come. We don't have time to look at Romans. Uh, There's a couple of references there on the handout you can check out in your own time or ask me in the questions. Uh, Let me wrap up. From time to time, we'll hit passages in the Bible that so transform our understanding of the world that they will radically shift the whole direction of your life. And I wonder if Genesis 3 might be one of them. How would you answer our opening questions now? What are your expectations for life? What are you going to make your life about? Saving the world and solving the biggest mysteries in science? The most important collective mission of all time, as he puts it? You could commit yourself to getting us back to Eden, as many do. You could invest your time and your money and your energy into saving the world, experiencing some kind of utopia at the end of it, you hope. But it is to commit yourself to something that God has set himself against. He has promised you won't succeed. It's not, to, it's not wrong to work in the direction of Genesis 2. We said this a couple of weeks ago in the question time. God's good design in Genesis 2 is so good that we want to work towards it rather than against it. Medicine that prolongs life. Work that proclaims the goodness of God. Marriages that reflect God's original design. It is good to work towards God's design rather than away from it. But we need to understand we're never going to reach Eden at some point we'll find the way obstructed. If we expect perfection, we're destined for disappointment. John Newton, the slave trader turned abolitionist, threw himself into the work of abolishing slavery. He saw the great value of working to get us closer to Genesis 2, the value of every human life, the evil of slavery, the need to overcome it. But even while he threw himself into that work, he knew it wasn't getting us back to Eden. And he knew there was something even greater that he could commit himself to, helping people to turn to Jesus. He made this startling statement, which I wish I'd put on your handouts. You can come and ask me for it later. The recovery of one immortal soul to the favor and image of God. In other words, helping one person back into relationship with God It is and will be at length found a greater and more important event than the deliverance of a whole kingdom 
from slavery or temporary ruin. The recovery of one immortal soul to the favor and image of God is and will be at length found a greater and more important event than the deliverance of a whole kingdom from slavery or temporary ruin. Our best efforts in this life will always be temporary, thwarted, thorns and thistles. But as Paul puts it later in 1 Corinthians 15, your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Now, to help people to trust in the serpent crusher is truly the most important collective mission of all time. Every person you introduce to Jesus, every person you encourage to keep going in the gospel is saved for eternity. There's no way back to Eden. But in Christ, the serpent crusher, there is a way forward. That's what life is going to be like. So tell me, what are you going to make your life all about? Let me lead us in a prayer. Our Father, thank you so much for speaking to us about the world that we live in, helping us to understand why the world is the way it is. Thank you for how well your word describes to us the world that we inhabit. And we pray that you would help us uh, not only to believe that, but to commit ourselves wholeheartedly to the work that truly is the most, collective, uh, the most important collective mission of all time. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.